there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. And I'm going to turn your attention today to one of the gospel records as we begin this special season of the year where our attention is especially drawn to Christ. I want you to open the Word of God with me, if you will, today to the gospel according to John, to John chapter number 10. I wonder if you have a favorite gospel record. I like what your pastor said, your favorite whichever one you're in at the time. Uh, my favorite, if I had to pick one, somebody said you've got to get one, uh, would be Mark. I don't know all the reasons for that, but I really like the gospel according to Mark. Uh, let's take a vote on it this morning. How many of you would say Matthew is your favorite? Just curious. Anybody? One at Matthew. Poor Matthew. All right. Anybody? Mark. Would you raise your hand? That's the gospel of action. How about Luke? Dr. Luke. How about John? How many of you never read the Bible? Would you raise your hand, please? Pick one, you know. I would say most people think John because John is the most familiar and uh, as a matter of fact, you think, you know, the gospel in a nutshell, John chapter 3, verse number 16, it was the last gospel record to be written. It is the interpretive gospel record, meaning by that, that it takes all the records that are given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it gives some, some definition and interpretation to it. It's almost like a commentary on the life of Christ, and it is rich and wonderful. And when you come to John chapter 10, you come to a famous chapter, in fact, and I'm not going to preach the famous part this morning. The famous part are the opening verses where our Lord is speaking and he refers to himself as the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. Aren't you glad he's the good shepherd? Matter of fact, did you know that you are in John chapter 10? I would challenge you to read John chapter 10, not, not while I'm preaching, but on your own time today. Read the whole chapter. Because in John chapter 10, Jesus said not only did he have this flock, meaning the Jews, but he had another flock, and he was going to one day bring both the flocks together. Guess who's in the other flock? Yes. Now, there may be some Jewish people among us today, and if so, I say, God bless you. <clears throat> Thank the Lord for that. It is the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Anybody grateful for the also? Because it's the gospel for all people. And the other flock, of course, are those who are Gentiles. How many Gentiles are here? Let's clear it up. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, all right? So how many Gentiles are here, all right? So then you're in this chapter. And it's in that context where we find this little, little story that, frankly, I have read over, skimmed over, I hate to say skipped over so many times, almost just thinking, well, you know, that's informational. That's, that's just a transition. Could I remind you nothing in the Bible is there by accident? Nothing incidental, nothing coincidental. No, no, this is in the good providence of God, the Holy Spirit tells us. Look at John chapter 10, verse number 19. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? 
So on one hand, you've got some people that say, this man is a devil. Can you imagine looking the Son of God in the face and calling him a devil? They're looking at the creator of the universe, the sinless Son of God, the Savior of the world, calling him the devil. How blinded men can be to the truth. Think of this, God standing in front of them, and they missed him. And on the other hand, you've got a group of people that say, that doesn't make sense to us. Seems like if the man's healing sick people and raising dead people and preaching such messages that change people's lives forever, that wouldn't be the work of the devil. That makes good sense to me too because the devil is a destroyer and not never a builder. He is, he is one that destructs, not one that constructs. And so there's this great division. By the way, it is Christ himself who is the dividing line of all of history. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world stands on one side of Christ or on the other side of Christ. In fact, harken back to his, his previous words about being the good shepherd. Jesus said in another place there were sheep and there are goats. In other words, there are those who belong to Christ and there are those who do not belong to Christ. There are those who believe on Christ and there are those that do not believe on Christ. The great question of the world is this, what think ye of Christ? That's why when Jesus came, he said, I didn't come to send peace. That probably shook him. He said, I came to send a sword and to divide a man and a woman, to divide parents and children, to divide brothers and sisters. And somebody said, hold up just a minute. You mean God came to bring division? Oh, yes. He divides those who know him from those that do not know him. Pardon me. It is not, can't we all just get along and believe that, you know, there's a superpower somewhere and he's God and so we're all God's children. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. The only ones who can say they're God's children are those who know God in a personal way as their father. And how do you know the father? You have to know his son. And so there's this great division. And the story continues in verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. How many of you find some solace here in the fact Jesus was in the winter season? Yes. I got off the plane last night, and I thought, I'm not in the south anymore, let me tell you. It was winter in the Jewish climate. Really, it was the rainy season. That's what it was. And perhaps that was the reason, humanly speaking, why I was walking in Solomon's porch. There was some shelter there. There was... There was some, um, some shelter from the winter weather. And the Bible says in verse 23, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, Get the picture. Look, go, come on, go with me just a minute. Put yourself in their sandals. They put Jesus right in the middle, and they circle him in like a bunch of wolves. Remember, he's the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. Here come the wolves. They always show up, don't they? And they surround him. They circle him in. They think, we got him now, we've pinned him down, we're going to press him on this, and we're going to make him tell us what we want him to say. And so they said unto him, how long dost thou make us to doubt? Literally, why, why are you keeping such suspense about yourself? And look at the last statement of verse number 24. If thou be the Christ, notice the if there, they didn't believe it. It's the same exact expression. They would cry at him when he was hanging on the cross. If you're really the Christ, if you're really the Son of God, come down off that cross. If thou be the Christ, and notice what they ask. Tell us plainly. Stop beating around the bush. Stop, uh, stop you know, just giving insinuation. 
and tell us the truth. Are you really the Messiah? I've been chewing on this this week a little bit. I've never preached from this passage, and I've just been kind of living in it the last three or four days, and I've been thinking to myself, why didn't he? I mean, that's a fair question. You ever wonder why in the gospel records Jesus didn't clear off a spot, stand up on a rock somewhere and say, let me get everybody's attention now. I am the Messiah Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53. I am the promised one that you've been waiting for centuries for. I am the one. You don't find that. There are glimmers of it. For example, when that Samaritan woman. Everybody remember the Samaritan woman at the well? They had that little interchange, that fascinating conversation, and Jesus finally brings it down to who he is. And she said, we know Messiah's coming. We know he's coming. And Jesus said, I wish I could say it like Jesus must have said it. Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. Now that changed everything. She went back to town differently than she came out of town, I'll tell you that. She'd had an encounter with Messiah. Or how about, how about that blind man that the Lord Jesus opened his eyes? Can you imagine the first thing you ever see in this world is the Son of God? He opened his eyes. And Jesus starts talking about Messiah. And the blind man said, well, I, I know he's coming, but I don't know who he is and I don't know where to look for him. And Jesus looked him in the face. Oh, I love this. Eye to eye con with a former blind man and Jesus said he that speaks to you is he it's pretty strong wouldn't you say or how about when he had that group of disciples around and he said hey fellas who do men say that I am oh well they say you're this prophet or this prophet no 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 let's get personal see it only gets real when it gets personal so who do you say I am Peter speaks up and says we believe I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven has revealed this to you. You get these little glimmers, but you don't get the in mass kind of, of thing that these people were looking for. And I really have been thinking on this week, why? Seems like the easy thing to do would be just stand up and say it to everybody at the same time. And by the way, don't just show a little glimmer of your glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why don't you let your face glow while you say it to everybody? From a human standpoint, that sounds about right, doesn't it? It's what we would have expected. It is certainly what they expected. But I think there's several answers to it. One answer is this, that really he didn't have to say it with words. He said it with his whole life. That's really what he's about to tell them. Look, the works testify. Everything about my life is saying this to you. Well, what did John write in 1 John chapter 5? He said, there are three that bear witness on the earth. There's the Spirit and there's the blood and there's the water. And these three testify in one. Look, when Jesus came to earth, the Holy Spirit signified that he was the Son of God. Water and blood came out of his side on that cross signifying he is the Son of God. Do you understand that everything on earth in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus was testifying to who Christ was? This was more than words. His whole life was saying he was the Messiah. Another reason I think is he didn't use the word Messiah because to the Jewish people at this time, even the word Messiah had military implications and political implications. And they immediately thought if he's Messiah, then he ought to be getting an army up to march against Rome and take over Caesar. And Jesus knew that wasn't why he came the first time. That's reserved for the second coming of Christ. Aren't you glad he is coming again? 
I'm going to tell you what I think the real reason is. I think there's a spiritual reason why Jesus didn't just stand up and say, everybody look at me. I'm the one you're looking for. And here's the reason. Watch this, please. Even though they could see him, they had to exercise an element of faith. See, people say, well, if I could see Jesus, I'd believe. Then that's not faith. No, no, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Why is that? Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Do you understand? What these people needed was not information. They needed a revelation. What they needed was not more knowledge in their head. What they needed was a heart that was wide open to who Christ was. And may I say to you, you and I are living in an age exactly like the age to which Christ came to this earth the first time. I'll tell you what it is. It is a world filled with knowledge, filled with facts, filled with information, and empty of who God is. In fact... No generation in the history of the world has ever known more about this world and more about the Creator than we do right now. And yet no generation, excuse me, is more spiritually ignorant and stupid than the generation we're living in right now. And I'm going to tell you why that is. Because it is not about what you know. It is about the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can have a head full of knowledge and a page full of notes and a heart empty of Jesus. And I'll tell you what the problem with these people was. They missed him. They missed him. Wait a minute. They got centuries of expectation. They missed him. They got scroll after scroll after scroll filled with prophecies, specific prophecies about the coming of Messiah. And they missed him. They have his whole life to this moment, more than 30 years of sinless living, and now all the miracles and all the gracious words that came from his lips and all the beauty and loveliness of Christ. And they missed him. And we sit back and say, but may I ask you this morning, is it possible we're doing the exact same thing they did? Could I point out who it was that missed him most? The religious people. See, the people in the passage, excuse me, were not the harlots and the publicans. They were the religious people. You know the kind. The people that clean up really good for church on Sunday. The people who've heard all that before. Do you know who the most arrogant people in church are? People who win Bible trivia every time they play. They know that already. Paul said something about that. I think he said it this way. Knowledge puffeth up. And in John chapter 10, in in the circle, it's quite a circle. In the circle, you have a whole bunch of people that knew lots of things, but they didn't know Jesus. They had found so much, but they had missed Christ And I came this morning to plead with you. And I have no idea who I'm preaching to. And I'm not just preaching to lost people. I'm preaching to everybody in the room today. I came to plead with you today, religious or non-religious, whoever you are, whatever you think you know, dear friend, please don't miss Jesus. 
Over the next few weeks, we'll go through all the traditional things and hear the stories and sing the songs and think the thoughts and watch the, watch the pictorial displays of things. And do you know my great fear? My great fear is it is possible that we could commit the very same sin they committed in John chapter 10, and in the midst of it all, we could miss Jesus. Let me give you a handful of thoughts this morning. Would you write them down somewhere? They all come right here from these few verses. Number one, don't miss why Jesus came. Did you ever notice the verse that precedes the story? See, every text has a context. So we started in verse number 19 where it says there was a division. But if you back up, what was the last thing Jesus said to them right before there was a division? Well, look at verse number 18. He says, let's start in verse 17. Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I like this part. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. See, they wanted him to come for their purposes. He came for his purpose. I'll tell you what we have. We have a Christ of our own making. Our modern American Christianity has constructed a Messiah of our liking. And I want you to know Jesus didn't come to make you feel good and give a chill up your spine. I flipped on the television this morning. There was a gospel preacher on. He preached the gospel, and I was very grateful to God for that. And when he went off, another man came on who did everything but preach the gospel. And I, I must tell you, I listened for three or four minutes, and I'd had enough of it. I just turned it off. I couldn't stomach it anymore. Because here's a man who proposed himself to be a minister, speaking out of the Scriptures, but he did not even know who Christ was enough to speak of Christ as the Savior of lost sinners. And I want you to know, Jesus didn't come to make this world a better place from which to go to hell. Jesus came to save men from everlasting destruction. Why did you come? Let Jesus answer for himself. He came to lay his life down, and he came to take his life again. And he said, I have the power to do both. That's why his death was miraculous in the fact that he dismissed his own spirit. He had the power to lay it down. And praise God, three days later, yes, he had the power to take it up again. He came out of that grave alive forevermore. Don't miss why he came. That's not all. Don't miss where he was. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 22. And it was at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What does that word mean? Jerusalem comes from the word shalom. You know the word shalom, church? What does it mean? Peace. Literally, wholeness. Completeness. Oh, I love this. Do you understand that it wasn't about Jerusalem? These people are so everlasting enamored with Jerusalem, they miss Jesus. Did you know sometimes we get so enamored with places we miss the person? Watch this, please. It wasn't just Jerusalem, the city of peace. It was that Jesus Christ, who is peace, who is the one who brings God's peace to mankind, was walking in Jerusalem. Don't miss where he's at. There's no coincidence in this. Jerusalem, the place that is at the center of all messianic prophecies. And why did Jesus come? He came to fulfill all righteousness. He fulfilled everything God foretold. All the prophecies center in Jesus. They all rush to Christ. Don't miss Jesus. Now, that's not all. Look at verse number 23. He's not only at Jerusalem. Mark the word in. He walked in the temple. So he's not only in the city of prophecy and the city of peace. Now he is in the heart of that city. He is in the temple itself. 
Now, what's significant about that? Because God had told these people that someday he was going to bring his own glory into that temple and they shouldn't miss it. And guess what? They did. Everybody hold your place. Put your right hand in John 10. Don't lose your place. Go back in your Bible to the Old Testament. With your left hand, find the book of Haggai. I promise you that's in your Bible. I promise you it is. It's where the pages still stick together. Does that help you any? It's really white and clean there. We don't go there often enough. It's only two chapters long. It's near the end of your Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets, oh, but with a major message about Jesus. Look at Haggai chapter 2. Oh, I love this. Can I tell you the story in Haggai chapter 2? All the old-timers are sitting around looking at the newly reconstructed temple, and they say, you know, this isn't nearly anything like the first temple. We sure like the first temple better. Isn't that just like a bunch of people to talk about the good old days and miss what God's doing today? G. Campbell Morgan said, It is impossible to unlock the present with the rusty key of the past. May I say to you, some of you need to get past the past if you're going to find what God has for you in the present and in the future. Our God is not a past tense God. He's a present tense God. Aren't you glad for that? He's a very what? Present help in time of trouble. His name is not I was or I will be. His name is I am. Don't miss this now. Look at Haggai chapter 2. God said something about that temple. All the old people sitting around talking about, we miss the former temple. And look what God says. This must have blown their mind. Haggai 2 verse 9. The glory of this latter house mm, shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. Stop, lift your head and look at me just for a second. How on earth could God tell them that the second temple which was nothing compared to Solomon's temple, the first temple. How on earth could he say that the glory of the latter temple, the second temple, was going to exceed the glory of the former temple? These people must have said, we don't, we don't get it. We'll keep reading. Look at the end of verse number 9. And in this place will I give what, church? Oh, wait a minute. Why did Jesus come? He came to bring God's peace to us. In this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Would you take your pen and mark in verse 9 the word glory and the word peace and notice the connection between the two and then go back to John chapter 10 and notice the connection between Jerusalem, the place of peace, and temple, the place of the glory of God, the place of worship of God. Watch, please. How could God the Father say that the second temple would have greater glory than the first? Are you ready? Because God himself in human flesh would walk into that second temple. David and Solomon, they lived leading up to that first temple. And somebody said, oh, I tell you, that was quite a temple. Yes, but you haven't seen anything like when Jesus himself shows up, friends. It was great when the priest came through, but I'll tell you, when the high priest showed up, now that was a glorious day. And do you understand that standing in that temple is the high priest of heaven is the sinless Son of God, and they missed Him. Go back to John 10. There's another, there's another little preposition here. Even the prepositions are a revelation. Kids, I'm sorry to use a dirty word in church like preposition, but look at it. In verse 22, he's at Jerusalem. In verse 23, he's in the temple. And then, just to be sure you understand where he is, he is in what? Solomon's porch, named after Solomon. But wait a minute. Where is he standing? He's, he's in Jerusalem, place of peace and prophecy. He's in the temple, the place of the glory of God. And now where is he specifically? He's in Solomon's porch. It seems like there's a verse in the gospel records that says that a greater than Solomon is here. 
What was Solomon known for? All the wisdom of God. Who is Jesus? He's wisdom incarnate. Read 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, everything they needed, everything they desired, everything they looked for, they missed when he was standing right in front of them. Don't miss Jesus. And that's not all. Would you write down a third truth? You must not only not miss why he came and where he came, but don't miss when he came. Would you look, please, at the little expression in verse 22? It was the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. It's very specific, isn't it? An exact time of year and an exact period of days, in fact. How many of you ever heard someone celebrating Hanukkah. Would you raise your hand? Did you know Hanukkah starts this evening? If you have Jewish friends, Hanukkah starts this evening. Starts in the evening of this particular day. It moves a little bit every year, same time of year. It starts this evening, and it runs through a week from Monday. It's Hanukkah. And for years, I just really ignored the whole thought about People celebrating Hanukkah because I thought, well, that's not one of the feast or festival days that you see in the Old Testament that harkens back to Moses. And that's true. It came much later. And then one day I started reading and studying, and I realized something. Did you know Hanukkah's in the Bible? Mm-hmm. It is this feast. In fact, John chapter 10 and verse number 22 is the only reference to this feast in all of Scripture. You might want to mark that in your Bible somewhere because when people say they're celebrating Hanukkah, say to them, oh, oh, let me show you the one who fulfills that feast. Let me show you the one who who fulfills all that the people were looking for and celebrating on that feast day. It's referred to here as the Feast of Dedication. Well, what, what was that feast? Oh, it was several things. First, it was a feast of cleansing. You see, about 180 years, roughly, before Christ, a Syrian leader had come in to Jerusalem and had defiled the temple. Now, you've got to understand, those Jewish people, it was, it was very, very specific, the cleansing rituals and all that. He literally came in. You can read it for yourself. Do the background study on it. He killed an animal and spread its blood all over. And the filth the Jews hated most spread it all over the temple and desecrated their temple. It was awful. And when finally those Syrians were expelled from Jerusalem and cast out of Jerusalem, the new leader of the Jews came in, and guess what the first thing he did was? He cleansed the temple. So when they celebrated what we call Hanukkah, this feast of dedication, it was a remembrance of that cleansing time. Wait wait a minute, just a second. Why did our Lord Jesus come? Do you understand that Jesus has already walked through this temple one time and cleansed the temple and cast out the money changers and he's going to do it one time more? It seems to me there's a picture being fulfilled here. What is Jesus saying? Look, you want to be clean? You, you want to be made a partaker of the holiness of God? You want to come near to God? You want the past to be under the blood? Do you want all those things to be gone? Only Jesus can do that for you. And it was at the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Cleansing, that our Lord Jesus, the Holy One of God, came into that temple to purge all sins. That's not all. It was not only the Feast of Cleansing, it was a Feast of Thanksgiving. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? How many of you had a good Thanksgiving? Let me just tell you something. It's supposed to be more than a day, more than a holiday. 
It's supposed to be a way of life for the people of God. Uh, but this feast of dedication, Hanukkah, was a feast of thanksgiving for those people. Do you know why it was a feast of thanksgiving? They say, I don't know all the details of this, but this is what the Jewish people believe, that when they finally came in and recaptured Jerusalem and recaptured the temple, all of the holy oil had been desecrated except for one pot of holy dedicated oil. You remember the oil had to be used to burn there in the temple and keep the light going every day. And they had to use a certain kind of oil because that's what God had told them to do. And there was only one pot which was only enough, that vial only enough to keep the light burning in the temple for one day, but they said at that particular time when God delivered them and the temple was rededicated that they used that one vial of oil and the light burned for eight days. And they felt it's such a miraculous thing that they saw in that God's great provision to them and every year they celebrated it and they gave God thanks and praise and glory. Hold on just a second. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's great miraculous provision for all of mankind. He is the one for whom we give thanks, not for things, but for Jesus. And yet it was at that celebration that they missed him. And that's not all. Hanukkah, even today, is known as the festival of lights. How did they celebrate this dedication, this cleansing, this thanksgiving? Well, they lighted candles, lots and lots and lots of them. And to this very day, those who commemorate Hanukkah, and by the way, I'm not on a crusade to get New Testament Christians to celebrate Hanukkah. I'm just telling you, Christ is the fulfillment of every expectation they had in their hearts. And even today, what do they do? They light candles. That's very interesting. Would you turn back just a few pages in your Bible to chapter number 8? I think it's two pages, perhaps. And listen to Jesus speak again in John 8 and verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light is standing in front of them. Forget your candles. The light of the world is Jesus. But they missed him. Go back to John 10 and notice they not only missed why he came and where he came and when he came, but number four, they missed what testified of Jesus. They said, tell us plainly, tell us plainly. And look at what Jesus said in verse 25. He said, there are three things that have already told you. They've already told you. First, Jesus answered them. He said, I told you, and you believe not. I told you. So his words, they, they would say, never a man spake like this man. We've never heard it on this fashion before. He speaks like authority, not as the scribes. Jesus said, I've been telling you lots of things, but you don't want to hear my words. You're like a bunch of people. Look up here just a second. You're like a bunch of people saying, tell us something, and then going. Sounds like the world today. Well, tell us the truth. They don't really want to hear the truth. And see, when you reject light, guess what you get? Darkness. When you, when you reject truth, guess what you believe? A lie. You ever wonder why the world is in such insanity right now? I have. How many of you have watched the news in the last few days? Would you raise your hand? I mean, frankly, you look around and you think, pardon me, this is not a nice word, but the world's getting dumber and dumber. How's that possible? I'm going to tell you how that's possible. Because when you reject God's truth, you start believing lots of things that are the devil's lies. It never gets better. It always gets worse. 
They hadn't listened to his words. By the way, have you noticed a little consistent theme here this morning? I am the light. I am the good shepherd. Study all the I am's of Scripture. What was he using? He was using the exact same words that God gave to Moses when he said, just tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. In other words, look, please. He was saying that the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. And the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Look, he was revealing himself as the true and living God. They didn't want his words. And then look at verse number 25 again. Not only his words, but his works. He said, I told you, and you believe not. Then he said, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not. Uh, look down to verse 32. Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? Look at verse 37. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, but if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Do you understand all the works that Jesus did right before their very eyes? The Jews require a sign. All right, God gave them a sign, and still they did not believe him. I hear people today say, well, I tell you, if I could see some of those miracles, then maybe I'd believe. No, you wouldn't, because you have the same heart, unbelieving heart that those religious people did. Whatever you see, it's never enough. You've got to see a little more and a little more and a little more. I mean, good night. What does Jesus have to do to prove who he is? He stands in a cemetery and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. One old preacher said if he hadn't called him by name, every dead man in that cemetery would have come out of the grave. He walks on water in the middle of the night. He feeds 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. Look at all the miracles that he performs, and still they will not believe him. As a matter of fact, in this very temple complex, do you understand all that he's done? He's cleansed the temple. He's healed a paralyzed man who is laying by the pool of Bethesda. He's opened the eyes of another blind man, all right there in this temple complex. And yet, though they saw every bit of that, they did not see him. See, there is a difference between seeing with eyes of flesh and seeing with eyes of faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Faith is not seeing things. Faith is looking to Jesus. And they missed him. And Jesus said, there is one more thing that testifies of me. My words and my works. Mm -hmm. Look at verse 27. My sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Anybody here glad to be one of the Lord's sheep today? Watch this. Jesus said, my words tell you who I am, and my works tell you who I am, but if that's not enough for you, look at my sheep. That's convicting to me. I wonder if he even pointed at the disciples. Look at my sheep. Gypsy Smith said God wrote five gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the believer. And then he said most lost people will never read the first four, but they're definitely reading the fifth one. Can I tell you what today testifies of Jesus in this world? Three things. His works, they're all around us. His word, aren't you glad we have it? But his sheep are supposed to be testifying to 
See, I always heard this passage quoted like we all just sit around and say, I'm so glad I'm in the Father's hand. I'm just so glad I'm secure in the Lord. Do you understand the context of the passage? Is Jesus is dealing with a lost world and trying to get them to understand who he is and the greatest billboard of the grace of God, the greatest testimony of the validity of Jesus Christ is seen in the difference that is made in the lives of his followers? Don't miss Jesus. I think sometimes it's not just lost people missing Jesus. It's a whole bunch of saved people missing Jesus. We're so distracted with what's going on around us. We're so consumed with our own needs. We are, we are so fixated on circumstances that we are missing what our Lord is up to in this world. I say again, don't miss Jesus. One more. Would you write it down? Don't miss why he came and where he came and when he came. And don't miss what testifies of Jesus, but then don't miss who belongs to Jesus. It's interesting to me. He brings us back full circle to two groups. Remember how verse 19 started? There was a what? Division. When you come down to verse number 26 and 27, you've got two groups. Verse 26, there are those who believe not. And in verse 27... There are those who believe. In the end, there's only two groups of people. There are those who believe and those that believe not. It's not rich or poor, educated and uneducated, black or white. No. It's not Yankees and Southerners. Mm -mm. It's not Americans and everybody else. That's not the two groups. It's only two groups. There are those who belong to Jesus. And those who do not, or mass it this way, there are those who meet Jesus. And there are those who miss him. On April the 14th, 1912, at 1140 at night, the ship that God himself could not sink, they said, cut through the icy waters of the North Atlantic, hit an iceberg. You know the story of the Titanic. In a matter of moments, it goes to the bottom of the ocean. Thousands of souls perished that night. Did you know that there were three classes of passengers on that ship when it left port? Three very distinct classes. Yet the White Star Line that owned the Titanic, when the tragedy took place, built a, built a scaffold at the port where the Titanic was supposed to come in where hundreds and hundreds of family members and friends came to find out if their loved one had lived or died. And they made an enormous backdrop. On one side it said this, known to be saved. And on the other side, these words, known to be lost. They printed the name of every passenger on board the Titanic and they paid a young steward to come out on that platform and hold up a name. And people in breathless silence would wait until somebody in the audience would say, that's our mother or that's our daddy, or that's, that's my sister, or that's my friend. And then once someone in the crowd had identified with that person, that young steward without a word would turn around and take that name and post it on one side or the other. They were either known to be saved, or God forbid, they were known to be lost. And I'm going to tell you something. There might be lots of classes of people in our world today, but when the whole thing comes in, when it all goes to the bottom someday, there's only going to be two classes of people. There are those that are known to be saved, and God forbid there are those that are known to be lost. And by the way, what will be known someday is known by God already today. Don't miss Jesus. Do you know the name Charles Templeton? Anybody in the room know the name Charles Templeton? I see one hand. Two. How many of you know the name Billy Graham? That's interesting. Billy Graham... With God now, of course. Billy Graham and Charles Templeton were best friends. 
They were two young preachers starting out together. In fact, the people that heard them both said that Charles Templeton was a much better preacher than Billy Graham. Templeton also held meetings around the world. They said, people, first-hand observers, said they never experienced anything like it. They'd never heard a man on a platform hold a crowd in the palm of his hand like that man did. I mean, he just could hold people almost spellbound as he preached. And people said, now, this, this young man, he's going to the top. He's going to be the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. There came a day in Charles Templeton's educational experience that he started coming under the influence of some people who were not believers. He started questioning the miraculous works of Jesus and supernatural things in the Bible. He paid a visit to Billy Graham, his home in North Carolina. Graham later said it was one of the most staggering days of his life because here sat his best friend in his living room telling him, Billy, I don't believe any of that anymore. And he said that day he tried to talk Billy Graham out of his faith. Said a motion of chain of events in Graham's life. You can read the story for yourself. But recently I was reading a little more about Charles Templeton. I was staggered by his story. A religious man, very religious, an educated man, a very intellectual man, a bright man. But he missed Jesus. He became a lecturer, an author. In fact, One of his most well-published, well-read books was called Farewell to God. He was dying in Canada, Toronto, I believe. An American reporter went to visit him. I know who the man is. He's written lots of amazing things. And the man went and sat down in his living room. And he said, I... I just want to ask you some questions. They had a lengthy interview. They talked about his relationship with Billy Graham, the early years with Youth for Christ, who right here in the Chicagoland area had amazing gospel meetings, and Templeton had been a part of all that, had seen all of that. They talked about his later years, his career. He never would say he was an atheist. He just, I'm an agnostic. I just, I don't know about all that now. He asked him lots of questions about that. There was fire in his soul as he talked about certain things. And finally, the reporter asked him a question he wasn't ready for. He asked him this, what do you think about Jesus? And for a moment, he said the man bowed his head, stared at the floor, speechless. And then quietly he said, He's the most beautiful, wonderful person I've ever known anything about. In fact, every good thing I've ever known in my life somehow was connected to Jesus. The reporter later said that the man had been stern, stoic, and very, very uh, cold through most of the meeting. And suddenly tears filled the eyes of an aging, dying Charles Templeton. And Templeton said... I miss him. (laughs) He gathered himself, wiped his tears, and said, Enough of that. On with the next question. I can't get those words out of my mind. I miss him. 
Can you imagine how many people are going to miss heaven, miss peace, miss forgiveness, miss mercy? And you know why? Because they're missing Jesus. And I'm looking at a whole bunch of religious people here today. By the way, you're looking at one too. And you know what we all are? Just a bunch of religious sinners, that's what we are. And I'm going to tell you who we need. We need Jesus. Church, don't miss Jesus. Our Father, I thank you today for Jesus. Oh, that he may be loved and adored more and more today. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.